Gen X Playback, episode number three. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Gen X Playback, our tour through our favorite times of our lives, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, we are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I am Sean. And we're going to focus on yet another topic that we found interesting back then. Hopefully, you find it interesting today. So, in the past, we've talked about music. Um, our previous episode number two, we talked about television. So I thought it would be a good topic to pick this week. Let's talk about a sporting event, but also more than just sports. It was also a national event itself. And that was the 1984 Summer Olympics. And I think hopefully you'll find that this is an interesting topic. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's, it, you know, sometimes we forget uh, what it, things were like back then as far as, you know, how important the Olympics were. The, they definitely were because of the limited access to we had we had to all forms of entertainment. You know, you kind of look forward to the Olympics, and during this period, the Winter Olympics were combined and at the same time. So it was four years between Olympics. You know, right now they're split so that you get Olympics every two years, but back then it, it was kind of a big deal to for the buildup. And then, as you're going to talk about here. Uh, the United States did not go to the Olympics in 1980, so we had a long wait. You know, there was obviously the uh, the Winter Olympics of 1980, which we may discuss uh, at some time with the, the famous miracle on ice with the U.S. Olympic hockey team winning gold. But then we really didn't have anything until 1984. The Olympics for the United States was primarily the, the where they were looked at successfully was the Summer Olympics. So the Winter Olympics... The United States would have occasional winners. I know that if you go back to the figure skating champions for, for the women, and as you had mentioned, the 1980 hockey team. You know, but the, I think the gold medals were few and far between. The Summer Olympics was where the United States typically stood out compared to some other countries. Now you had the emergence of the Soviet Union in the 60s and 70s with what they were bringing to the Summer Olympics. So there was a, this big rivalry. And you had a huge rivalry between the Soviet Union and the United States, communism versus, you know, United States capitalism, Cold War going strong. And 1980 was sort of a disappointment, I think, for a lot of viewers, people that look forward to the Olympics. You and I were at an age where we were just starting to get into the Olympics, you know, sports in general mm -hmm. in the late 70s, early 80s. So not to have the Summer Olympics that the United States could participate in in the Moscow Olympics of 1980 was, I think, a big letdown for not only us as, you know, as kids and as viewers, but for the big majority of the country, I think, was really let down for not being able, not to mention the athletes that would have gone and, and represented the United States. It was a major disappointment. And I remember at the time being very sad it, when the announcement uh, came down from uh, President Jimmy Carter. I, it, it was something that I was extremely disappointed. You know, once again, to kind of give our ages here in 1980, I was 12. So when I was at, at 12, that was prime time for me to really start to get into sports. Uh, 1980 was the first year that I got Sports Illustrated. And one of the things with Sports Illustrated that they always did a good job with was kind of informing you about the Olympics. And they would break down a lot of the different categories. And uh, competition that that was out there and you got you, you went in with pretty good knowledge of what was happening and I definitely knew a lot of the athletes that were going to be favored and it, it was it was a huge disappointment in 1980 but as you had said this was the height of the Cold War so let's give a little bit of background here let's step back into the 1970s 
<clears throat> so we're building up to the 1984 Summer Olympic Games in Los Angeles. So this is being, uh, you know, the 1984 games are on U.S. soil. Let's go back to 1972. Uh, Munich Olympics and the heartbreaking devastation of the Israeli athletes, 11 Israeli athletes in the Munich massacre, Munich, Germany, where there were 11 athletes and one uh, West German police officer that were murdered by a, a Palestinian uh, uh, Black September members. And it was at the height of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Very, uh, very disappointing for everybody involved because the Olympics continued on after this happened. So it really cast a pall on those on those summer games. I understand that they felt that these athletes need, still needed to, to do what they had to do. But you talk about uh, ruining uh, an Olympics, although the Olympics were continued on in in 72. That's something that nobody will ever forget was that was that moment when, uh, you know, when those uh, athletes were killed. And for us at our age, uh, you know, fortunately, I think I, I had no memory of, of that happening. I, I do remember the 1976 Olympics. I remember it fairly well. But from 1972, it was something that I learned about later. It, I remember watching some news stories kind of detailing the events, and I was kind of stunned. I, you know, I, I don't think I even learned about what happened in 72 until they kind of talked about it a little bit during the 76 Olympics. And there were some notable moments that happened in the 72 Olympics. Uh, Mark Spitz won seven gold medals, which was just recently broken by Michael Phelps, uh, you know, a few years ago. The U.S. basketball team was tragically um, had the gold medal taken away from them in the, in the game against the Soviets, where they had, the U.S. had the lead and the referee forced them to replay the final play three separate times until the Soviets got a basket to win the game at the buzzer. Yeah. And the uh, United States basketball team, to this day, has never accepted their silver medals. They actually sitting in some vault in Switzerland that they refused. They said we were cheated out of that game. And they've never, to this day, none of the members of that basketball team has taken that silver medal. So those were the two, uh, probably uh, Mark Spitz and and uh, the basketball team losing was were probably the two most memorable moments of 72. I would agree. And for me, those are the two that I remember. Uh, and it's um, because with the, with the basketball, and I know we're going to discuss the 1984 basketball team, the United States was dominant. You know, it, it was it was a sport invented in the U, the USA. You know, James Naismith. Uh, you know, everybody knows about him hanging the peach basket in the gym so that you could play some sport, uh, play a sport in the wintertime. It was a U.S. sport developed in the U.S. and we 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 never lost. And to have that happen with the '72 team, where we are still in this era, folks. Keep in mind, these are all amateurs. So for the most part, we're sending over teenagers. We're sending college kids that are playing these sports and oftentimes they're playing against, you know, 30 year old, you know, adults that are professional. They're not professionals because they, they couldn't violate, you know, technically be professionals, but these were not young kids that we were sent over and we still dominated. And this was the first time the USA just did not have their way uh, with basketball. Yeah. So, um, 72, you know, a few big moments and, but yet, the de you know the devastation of the uh, the killings in the seventy two Munich Olympics. Let's let's go forward to nineteen seventy six Montreal, and there were some again notable moments for U.S. athletes, particularly uh, in boxing, mm -hmm. and 
with uh, with regards to uh, you know some success for the U.S. boxers, and, and typically boxing had always been a very strong sport for the United States. What the I think the main memory to take away from '76, and this is where it kind of leads us into 1984, is Montreal. The economy, Montreal was devastated financially by the Olympic Games of 1976 mm-hmm. to the point where it took them roughly 30 years to recover from. And I'll just throw a, a statistic out for you. As uh, I was reading an a article written by Yahoo Finance, every city that hosts an Olympic Games goes over budget. That's, that's a given. There's always going to be extended costs. Usually uh, the average for the modern Olympic Games is they run about a 176% over budget. For when they're, you know, because there's always these unknown costs. They have to build new buildings. They have to create housing. So 176% is the norm. Montreal, 720% over budget. It costs them almost 10 times more what they thought it was going to be. And a lot of it had to do with a, a shakedown with a local union representative with the construction where he kind of held them at bay. And, and basically strong arm them into paying more money. And the city, what could they have done? Because he, he had all the union contracts. He, he set the price and the city never recovered. As baseball fans, mm-hmm. the Phillies used to play the Expos in, Mon- in Olympic Stadium after the Olympic uh, Stadium was built. That was supposed to be turned into a dome. It took them nearly 30 years, or was, uh, 20 years at least. It took them 20 years to finally put the the dome on top of it. And even when they did it, it wasn't what they had intended on doing as the, um, uh, you know, as a permanent dome. It was uh, like a temporary thing that actually collapsed, I believe, once. But it was something that Montreal took forever to to crawl out from under financially. Uh, and we, we would watch games when the Phillies would play Montreal, you know, especially um, late 70s, early 80s, where both teams were good and, and oftentimes going uh, for the division. And that was notorious for being the worst, one of the, if not the worst, ballpark in all of baseball. So it's it's interesting because it had only been built like right for the Olympic Games in 1976. So it's probably constructed sometime in 75 or, or early 76. And it was horrible. And it, it was just an example of how this spending can get out of control. At, you know, we'll, with the 1984 Olympics, one of the the genius moves by Peter Uberoff was not to construct buildings, and and I mean I don't want to jump ahead, so I'll, I'll let you get move forward. So the um, you know we uh, I talked about the the success of the U.S. boxing team, which is one of the more memorable uh, team aspects. Uh, there's some uh, Sugar Ray Leonard won a gold medal, Leon Spinks won a gold medal, his brother Michael Spinks won a gold medal, Howard Davis Jr. and Leo Randolph. So. You, they they dominated the uh, the boxing circuit in the um, you know in the seventy six games. Probably the biggest name individual to come out of the seventy six Olympics was the decathlon winner Bruce Jenner. Yeah, and he ended up posing on the cover of Wheaties box. You know, it was a big deal to win the decathlon. That was kind of the quintessential event because it was the 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 ten event decathlon that. If you were able to outlast everybody that could be, you were considered the greatest athlete in the world to do that. And he, and he, he won gold. Uh, I think he came to the final event. And he had to finish, I believe, was fourth or better. And he was able to do that and win the gold medal. 
He was he was a huge star, uh, they, they, and they I remember commercials for Wheaties, not just on the box, but they would run commercials, and they would kind of show that final event. It, I still have it playing in my my head, you know, the memories of what they showed, and he that just goes to show you the power of the Olympics. Where today I don't know that you could say who the decathlon champion was, uh, even in 1984. I know it was Daly Thompson from Great Britain. I mean, because it still was a big deal where you were considered the greatest athlete in the world if you won the decathlon. That um, that definitely, uh, yeah, he was probably the biggest name that came out of this. For me, the second biggest name you mentioned was Sugar Ray. Yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, as a kid, I mean, Sugar Ray was, he, he may have been my favorite boxer. Yeah. I, I, I love Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray was cool. And he was engaging. He was not like your typical... He he followed along the, the same template as Muhammad Ali. He was, you know, well spoken. He was mm-hmm. funny, quick witted, and he gave great interviews. He was a darling for uh, somebody that we're going to talk about later in covering boxing and Howard Cosell. Just somebody that the media, uh, you know, the, the public could really latch onto and say this guy's going to be. Just aside from the fact that he was a great boxer. Oh well, yeah. Uh, you know, he just had he had the personality to just enhance that and make him that much more uh, lovable that you would you would root for him when he would when he turned pro and, and ended up having a very successful career. Right, because in 1976, I was eight years old. And so that was exactly the type of athlete I was going to be drawn to was somebody charismatic like Sugar Ray, but not just charismatic when he was conducting his interviews. And, and he was, you know, he was great. He was, he, he was an interviewer's dream. But when he boxed, not only was he phenomenal with how he boxed with his skill, but he had a flair about him. He didn't, he was, you could tell he, it wasn't just he was out there standing there slugging it out. He, he had a plan. There was, there was a lot of skill and technique to his, his game that he had. And he, I mean, I don't know if you agree or not, but I think those are the two biggest names that came out of 76. I, I would agree. And, and again, from, from a team sport perspective uh, for, for the United States. Now, obviously, uh, we're not talking, we're talking this from, from the U.S. Probably the biggest star to come out of the 76 Olympics wasn't from the United States, but uh, would be women's gymnastics mm-hmm. and Nadia Comaneci. Sure. Uh, she was the first uh, gymnast ever to score perfect tens in her routines. And it was uh, at such a young age, I believe she was not even 16 years old yet, to go out there and to win all these gold medals. She would have been probably the world darling sure. at the time. But from, from the United States... One thing that probably didn't get a lot of coverage at, at the time was the United States was quite dominant in swimming, where they they won gold in all but one event. So they were they were the most dominant. But unlike Mark Spitz in '72, there really wasn't one individual uh, swimmer that kind of came to the forefront. There was uh, John Nader um, was a swimmer that won four gold medals, but does anybody remember the no. name John Nader? And and that's what. I, you know, U.S. swimming was was quite dominant, uh, you know, at the time. And and the, but the swimming as as a team, there were so many individuals that participated for for U.S. swimming that they didn't. Uh, you know, there wasn't one person that stood to the forefront of that event. So, how much do you remember the '76 Olympics? Because you would have been five. very little, very little. I remember Sugar Ray Leonard. And I remember Bruce Jenner. Yeah. That's what I remember. Because they both did commercials. I mean, right. uh, Sugar Ray did 7-Up commercials and Bruce did Wheaties commercials. Yeah. I remember watching on the news when when it was official that, that Jenner won the decathlon. Mm-hmm. I remember watching that on the news. 
And I do remember watching uh, U.S. Boxing with Howard Cosell talking about Sugar Ray Leonard more so than the other other boxers that were. He just seemed to really have you know take to Sugar Ray in terms of like promoting him throughout the Olympic event. You have you have the two brothers. I mean, that would have been a great story in its own right. Leon and Michael Spinks both ended up becoming champions in their their own rights. Michael Spinks was you're talking about the light heavyweights of all time, one of the best. Uh, maybe next to Evander Holyfield as far as the greatest light heavyweight of all time, and eventually moved up and won the heavyweight title, mm-hmm. beating Larry Holmes right. to to win. And and he was undefeated for a long time until Mike Tyson took him out twice. But a young bull by the name of Mike Tyson destroyed him years later. So there was there were a, but again the the Spinks brothers very serious, soft spoken guys, more serious about their craft than they were about promoting themselves. And Sugar Ray not only was a good boxer, but he was able to promote himself. And I think that's why he stood out. And he had a young son at the time who also appeared in some of his commercials, mm-hmm. kind of enhanced his public image. Yeah. 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 So. All right. I, but from 76, from, from a United States, from a fan perspective, this is when the, the Soviet bloc countries were really starting to dominate the Olympic Games. And there was always... Uh, speculation and some accusations as far as how these athletes got to be where they were physically in in terms of blood doping and steroids and performance enhancing drugs. But the bottom line is in the 1976 Olympics, the Soviet union and East Germany won a total combined of 89 gold medals and 215 medals overall compared that to the U S and West Germany, the U S and West Germany only won 44 gold medals and 133 overall. So the communist bloc countries dominated the 76 Olympics, which for U.S. fans, you know, it, we're talking, we're, we're in the middle of the Cold War. We're coming out of Vietnam. Our president just resigned. And now the, the communists just beat our butts in the Olympics. It wasn't a good time for to be an American sports fan at, at that, you know, when you're talking at the world stage like the Olympics. Yeah, and I mean, I you kind of hinted at it the the whole all the allegations of the uh, the substance uh, abuse, you know, the the doping, the the steroids that were going on. I I, I think history has kind of shown that that's what was happening, and especially in weightlifting. I mean, it, it 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 was something where the United States just couldn't compete, and probably directly comes down to what was going on with steroid use. Now, some would say that later on. That uh, the U.S., you know, 20, 30 years later, uh, you know, went down that same path as well. I, I've, I've seen that argued. Uh, but the fact is, during that era, it, it, it wasn't known, but it, would de- it definitely was suspected that that's what was happening. And it's, it's not surprising that the, that the Soviets and their, their Eastern Bloc countries, that they, they were, you know, had that, that experience as well. I mean, that they were successful as what they were. But what it did was... I mean, because we're talking culture. Mm-hmm. So that definitely fed into the culture as a whole as being an American. So 1976 is our bicentennial. You know, we're 200 years as a country. And we have the, our enemy in the Cold War, you know, is the Soviet Union. And here they are, they are, you know, they've set the bar really, really high as far as athletics. And so as we move forward this is a target for the united states is to now overtake our enemy at least athletically so let's let's move ahead to 1980 all right so there's the the lake placid 1980 winter olympics which had some 
great moments for the United States, in particular, the hockey team. Mm -hmm. That's what everybody talks about to this day. Uh, Somebody who was also a big deal at the time was speed skater Eric Hyden, who won five gold medals in the 1980 Games. But again, the Winter Olympics weren't really the United States' strength. You you had had skiing, you you had... um, Figure skating. Figure skating. There weren't as many uh, events that the United States trained for. I believe they're more prepared for it today than they were back then. The the training for Winter Olympic Games, it wasn't a joint effort. Uh, I know that's something that the United States eventually, they had an Olympic training center that they built out in Colorado, mm-hmm. but that was more for the summer games than it was for the winter games. You had to have strong, either you had, your family had to have money for you to participate in some of these more or less highbrow sports. When you're talking about you know, skating and skiing, right. it costs money to go skiing. It's not right. it's not a cheap thing, and so it wasn't more of uh, it wasn't the everyday. Whereas when you're talking about the summer games, you have basketball, you have track and field. Where there's there's minimal cost there to obviously you have to go to events and things like it, but to, to train for those sports, you don't have to go out and buy you know a thousand dollars worth of gear to go do what you you know what you need to do. Yeah, I I think that's valid. You know that, and that's so. When you you talk about the 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 biggest story to come out of the nineteen eighty Winter Olympics, you know, was as I had mentioned earlier, the Miracle on Ice, the the men's hockey team, is because it was a huge upset. It, in no way were the Americans supposed to win. It because we were all surprised. That's why it made it such a national story. It, you're right. It was a feel good story. But I mean, I don't, I don't have the, the the number count in front of me. But you know, I, I I would imagine when tallied up in 1980 Winter Olympics, you know, we we didn't do as well as those other countries. Yes, that is correct. Um, I think the interesting thing to note about the 1980, when you talk about the Miracle on Ice game that was telecast, when we watched it as kids, we didn't watch it live. Correct. It was a replay. It was on tape delay, because the when the game was actually played. They they didn't air it until a few hours later, so it wasn't live. You didn't want if you saw it on TV, you didn't see it live, and which to me was just shows the difference between, uh, you know, going from the evolution of television. There was ESPN was only a year old; they didn't have any rights to the Olympics, so they couldn't cover it, and everything was covered by the networks, and they had their network prime time slots, and mm-hmm. that's when you got to view things, and it was you weren't gonna you weren't gonna. You know, preempt the six o'clock local news for a hockey game. Are you kidding me? Right. Uh, nobody, nobody would want to do that, right? Uh, I think, I think uh, you know, sports proved that wrong. But uh, it's just the fact that the game was even shown live on television. And then I don't even think um, we didn't even get to watch the gold medal game because it was on too late. It was on. It was a late game that that you and I weren't able to watch at uh, the time. Yeah, I think I right. had to go to bed. Yeah, and, you know, it was it was on too late. So I digress. We go out of that. In 1979, the uh, Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. Jimmy Carter threatens to pull the United States from those Olympic Games if they invade Afghanistan. Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. Carter decides to pull the United States from the Olympics. In total, 65 countries end up boycotting those Olympics. It was the smallest uh, participation in an Olympic Games for Summer Olympics since 1956. And only 80 nations participated in those games. So on the other side of the world, for us, there's really, there's, it's kind of like a blank memory. Really. It's like it didn't it's, even happen. Yeah, I, we, 
I couldn't tell you anything or anybody that won outside of there was one boxer in Cuba that was considered the greatest heavyweight in the world, but because he was Cuban, he couldn't compete professionally, and that was Teofilo Stevenson. Yeah. And he was considered the world's best heavyweight boxer that nobody knew of because he could only box in the Olympic Games. Right, right. He was actually, you know, uh, Stevenson was a, was a boxer. You would kind of look forward to saying when, when he would appear in the Olympics just because it was always regarded, oh, you know, Muhammad Ali might be a good boxer, but this guy is, is, is really the best in the world. So my memory of, of like 1980 and the Summer Olympics is occasionally you would see a few highlights of somebody from the Soviet Union crossing a finish line with their arms up yeah. <laughs> and some outrageous medal tally where, you know, it's, it's kind of like that old saying, um, you know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. It's, it was like, it was too much. It, 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 I know the propaganda machine of the Soviet Union when to portray them as, as this dominant country, but when so many other countries don't show up and you are winning almost every single event. No one took took that. No one's going to take you seriously, and no one took them seriously. So the uh, Australia was uh, was outraged and, and were quite public and vocal about what they thought of those nineteen eighty Olympic games. The Australian Senate was quoted as calling it the chemist games because <laughs> there was so much uh, steroid use in those particular uh, games. So. Blame Australia, the Australian Senate from 1980, if uh, don't blame me. Uh, but those communist countries, uh, more specifically the Soviet Union, East Germany, Bulgaria, and Cuba finished one, two, three, and four in the medal count. Mm -hmm. 143 gold medals out of 212 events, 382 medals overall. Uh, you have to go all the way down to Italy. I think they want to, they got a total of 15 medals to even come out of that top four it was clearly dominated by by the soviet bloc countries yeah yeah and you know so as, as i said and nobody cared i mean around the world uh, nobody cared it, it was just seen as something that never really happened okay so you take the 70s olympics and then the 1980 summer olympics in moscow so the u.s is they have a new president uh the economy is is climbing out of a hole you're starting to see it in 1982 and in 1983 with President Ronald Reagan. And the one thing, with, you know, not to get political, but I think anybody that grew up in that era will agree that Ronald Reagan did a lot to improve the patriotism of the United States. Fair statement? Oh, I agree. And, and this, this I, I throw this one out here a lot, and I'm sure you've heard me say it, but um, in 1984... Uh, Walter Mondale and Geraldine Ferraro ran against Ronald Reagan and George Bush for you know, president and uh, vice president. And Geraldine Ferraro told the story afterwards, and she said that during the the election that she was touring a a, um, a factory in the Rust Belt, and she goes, "If there ever was a place that should have had my vote, it was right there." And she walked up to one of the workers and said, can I count on you to vote for me this fall? And he said, absolutely not. I'm voting for Ronald Reagan. And she says, why would you vote for Ronald Reagan? And he said, he makes me feel good to be an American. That is what was going on with the 1984 Olympics. And just to piggyback off that, when Reagan and Walter Mondale debated for the very first time, and Mondale made a comment about Reagan's age because 
Reagan is now in his 70s, and he is the oldest president at that time in, in U.S. history, I believe. And Mondale made, made the comment. So the question got tossed back to Reagan about, about his age, and uh, you know, Reagan starts talking about, well, you know, I just I think it's important not to talk about you know my experience and and so what he ends up going on and saying is that I'm not going to hold it against Walter Mondale because he doesn't have his the youth and, yeah, and experience and experience yeah. and it, the whole auditorium just went nuts. Mondale even had to smile and laugh himself. And afterwards, after the election was over, years later, he said, "I, I was done." He goes, "I knew I, at that moment with the eruption from that auditorium." that I was out. I had no chance. And so th- there there was definitely a form of feel-good Americanism that was happening leading up to the 84 Olympics. And as you know, we're going to get into a little bit, we get even more coming out of the 84 Olympics. But there, you and I tonight, you know, before we watch this, I showed you a clip on YouTube about the opening ceremonies. And I, I think that you, know, you would comment, you know, about, you know, the kids running off the field and they're all going, USA, number one. Yeah. And they were genuine. They're like, yeah, yeah. USA, USA. I mean, they, uh, and these are high school kids. Yeah. Uh, we're gen, you know, growing up as Gen X, you go to the, to the kids of the 90s and there's the one clip in The Simpsons where they're standing in a concert and nobody's like laughing or putting their arms up. And the one guy says, I don't even know what I'm angry at anymore. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, it, you you probably wouldn't see that today, but I do remember doing that as a kid, going USA USA, when I would go see wrestling at Langston Catholic mm-hmm. High School when uh, you know when the Iron Sheik was was walking through and and cursing out the United States. But <laughs> all right, so let's 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 get ready, get ourselves set for 1984. Now, Los Angeles had bid for the Olympics every year after World War II. Every time that the Olympics had come up for bid, LA was throwing their hat in the ring saying, hey, we would like to host the Olympics. They did host the Olympics in 1932. This was before the Hitler Olympics of 36. They got the bid in 32 because no other city put a bid in. Let's move ahead to the 1984 Summer Games. Now, the, the actual vote occurred in the uh, in the 70s. But once again, Los Angeles gets it because, you know, ta-da, no other city put a bid in. Why would you want it at that time? It, it, it was exactly. going to put your city in debt. It was, especially coming off of Montreal, when it was that disastrous financially. And a lot of countries were not doing so well financially. The United States was one of the first to kind of climb out of it in the, in the 80s. And so there was a little bit more, I guess, at a higher pedestal financially. But they were the only city that put a bid in, and they did it in late seventies when the when the uh, count actually occurred. Tehran, Iran, was a part of it initially, but when they had the revolution in nineteen seventy nine with Ayatollah Khomeini coming in, they put they pulled their names out. L.A. was the only only one they got voted in, so they got the the uh, summer games in nineteen eighty four. All right, so part of the planning committee is a name that may some of you may remember if you're baseball fans. But the name Peter Uberoth uh, should stand out to you because Peter Uberoth eventually becomes the Major League Baseball commissioner in the mid to late 80s. He got that job basically because of the work that he did with the with these 84 summer I, I think he got the job like a few months after the games ended. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the fall of 84-ish, like maybe after the season ended. 
Uberoth uh, lived in the Los Angeles area, was a uh, private businessman, a very successful and young private businessman. He was, at the time when these Olympic Games occurred, he was in his early 40s. So, But he was part of the planning committee since, the, since 1980. And... They went about it, they approached it as a business model. They didn't necessarily look at it as receiving government funds because the government said, have at it, folks. So they had to raise this money on their own. But what made Los Angeles sort of the perfect venue is they had a lot going for them as a sports city. Now, a lot of people criticize Los Angeles, Los Angeles fans in their various sports because they're notorious for showing up late. They, people question their, uh, especially here on the East Coast, you know, you say LA fans, are they real fans because they don't seem to have their hearts into it. There's a lot of Los Angeles fans out there. There's a lot of Dodger fans out there that we see all the time, but they had a lot of infrastructure in place in Los Angeles that ended up being the perfect venue for these Olympic Games or for any Olympic Games, really, because they had so much already in place Unlike cities like Montreal and like Munich, where they had to build buildings from the ground up, they already had a lot in place. And I'll just throw some names out here for you. The Coliseum was mm-hmm. already there. Pauley Pavilion, the home of the Bruins, that's where gymnastics was, was uh, going on. The Forum, where the Lakers played, that was where the basketball games were played. Dodger Stadium for baseball. So uh, the Rose Bowl is where they played the uh, soccer. You know, we call it soccer, obviously football. Uh, Santa Anita Park is where the uh, equestrian events. I mean, they they had all this stuff already in place. They had the the athletes stayed at UCLA. The Olympic Village was at USC. All this within a few minutes of where everything was sort of centrally located, and they didn't have to build anything brand new. They did build. Is it for cycling? Was that the only thing? Cycling, and they did build a a swimming uh, center. Yeah, Uh, but. Uh, there was very little that needed to actually be built. Now they did remodeling of the Coliseum to get it ready for the games, but infrastructure-wise, a lot of the big stuff was already there. And that was the main thing. That that traditionally, uh, you know, the building projects are what the politicians want because now they can build stadiums. I, I remember Turner Field was built in in Atlanta for the when Atlanta hosted the Olympics. I mean, that you know, that's hundreds of millions of dollars to build that stadium and. As opposed to we're just going to use something that's currently existing. It's from from uh, uh, the the perspective of the politician. It's a it's a good way to get these projects funded. You know through money that that they don't have to necessarily uh, you know go out and raise. But what it can do is is what traditionally has happened with these other cities. It's it's put the cities in debt. And you know L A is for all its its faults that you mentioned had the facilities and and what the committee did they they smartly used all of it you know they it, they didn't keep it all in one area you know i they went down i think as as far south as san diego mm-hmm. and and used that and they they really spread things out over over a large area and actively sought out existing facilities with the intention that we're not going to go into debt yeah and the business model that uberoth used was sponsorships right at the time, you, you go back to the previous Olympic Games, and there were maybe three or four or five main sponsors that would uh, put their names in for the for the Olympics, and they were it was a select group, and there weren't many of them. Whereas with the eighty four Games, uh, 
you had sponsors and advertisements everywhere. Mm-hmm. They were all over the place. They, I believe the t- was the tennis center or not the tennis center the um, the cycling center. I believe was sponsored by Seven Eleven. They were the ones that financed that. So they had the, what was actually built and improved upon was paid for by corporate sponsorship. When you watch the Olympic athletes walk out and they had their warm-up suits on, do you remember the logo that was on it? I don't. It was Levi's. Okay. For the very first time, not only did you see the USA logo, but you had a Levi's logo on the uh, on the chest. And that was sold by the the Uberoth group on this on this uh, corporate sponsorship. McDonald's, who we're going to talk about mm-hmm. later, they were all over the Olympics. There was this, and again, a lot of it, call it patriotism, call it smart advertising, but a lot of sponsors, a lot of big companies, you know, Coke, uh, Kodak, Kodak, I mean, go down the list. A lot of these companies jumped on board and, and went in there to these 84 games. So you had this, uh, you know, this snapshot of just about every big American company that partook in this in these Olympic Games, whereas before it was a select few. I do remember uh, at, at that time in 84, a lot of the the companies were separately advertising the Olympics. So you might go to McDonald's and there would be something with the Olympic rings. You know, you, you, you would go to the, to the, the store and you might pick up some Kodak film back then when we used film and it would have the Olympic rings on the box. It, it was something that there definitely was this this marriage of, of both the Olympics and, and advertisers where it, this was the first time it ever happened. I think it's something you kind of take for granted right now because we're so used to advertisement being everywhere. But at that time, it was kind of controversial because this was seen, the Olympics were seen as amateur sports. And how much do we want to let business into an amateur sport? It was criticized at, at the time. Sure. It was criticized heavily for being too corporate and and, I, I do remember too it. sponsored i remember the criticism out there yeah because uh, the olympics were supposed to be held to a higher regard and it wasn't supposed to be made for profit and this olympic committee headed by uberoth went into a saying it's important to note that they didn't keep any of the money that they earned mm-hmm. it ended up going into sports programs so it's not like anybody benefited financially from this but based on that model they said we don't care, you know. We, it actually, I think it heightened the American involvement because there were so many different uh, sponsors sure. and part of it. I think it kept people more in tune because of the commercials that were a part of it. And um, yeah, I, I, I thought it actually made the Olympics better from a visual, you know, from just from a viewership standpoint. And it, it I, I would agree. And I, I think the, the important takeaway for me at that time was it, you just couldn't escape it. You knew, you knew the Olympics were coming because all the advertisers jumped on board. And so as a result, I really got geared up. You, you would go to, let's say, McDonald's, and they would actually give you handouts you know, telling you who was going to compete in the different, different events. It, it, it was something that you actively could fill out sheets for and you said, oh, I might not know anything about fencing, but now I'm getting educated on fencing. That's right. That's right. The last thing I wanted to talk about leading up to the 84 <clears throat> Olympics in, is cable television, more specifically ESPN. We talked in episode one 
of our podcast here with Gen X Playback is we talked about the power of MTV. Now we're going to talk about the power of ESPN. Probably uh, MTV might have been the first cable TV channel for Gen X to to make itself known. Although we, you know, Sean and I were big fans of ESPN from the first time we got it. But this is where you're starting to see ESPN kind of take that next step. Because although they weren't allowed to cover any Olympics, even Olympic events live, what they did do was they showed the Olympic trials where people were competing to get into the Olympics, which had never really been done before. You did not, you found out names of people that were going into the sure. Olympics. Now you could actually watch them competing against other Americans to get into, and not only that, but they also, um, TBS had done the Pan Am Games in 83. So we're starting to get more Olympic style events being shown more frequently on television. And a lot of that had to do with cable television, more specifically, like I said, TBS, but most mostly ESPN, where now you're starting to learn about these athletes before the Olympics even start. So you kind of have a rooting interest going into it. And we're going to talk about a couple of guys that we followed based on what we learned from watching them on ESPN going into the Olympics. Yeah, I, you know, that's certainly a valid point because I remember the the first week that you and I, or the first day that we got ESPN, you and I watched a pole vaulting comp- competition, an obscure pole vaulting competition, which, uh, you know, some of the people from that event ended up going to the Olympics. Uh, so it was something where I think, you know, two, three, four years earlier, we would have had no clue. As, you know, the 84 Olympic Games, I was... 13 years old. And so now I knew who Carl Lewis was. Mm-hmm. I knew who Edwin Moses was. I I knew just all the players from the USA basketball team. I'm going to focus on basketball. Sean's going to focus on boxing. But there were names, people that you knew. Uh, Mary Decker Slaney. Not Slaney yet. She right. became Slaney later. Okay. But Mary Decker for the 84 Olympics. And so she was somebody that that people were paying attention to her event going into these Olympic games. Whereas before there wasn't a whole lot of attention or coverage for these Olympic athletes pre Olympics. Yeah. Think about that. I mean, you, you threw out Mary Decker. I mean, that's, that's a, a name that I don't think most Americans would have really followed, uh, you know, a, a generation before just because it wasn't a glamorous sport. I mean, she, she was a runner. Um, you know, she, you know, we competed like the 3000 meters and, that's, you know, that's not something that was made for ABC's little primetime slot that they were going to show. You know, they, they, would, they would tend to focus on some of the bigger events. And in the 70s, boxing was big. Uh, you know, you, you still have Muhammad Ali as the, as the heavyweight champion. You know, we, we've talked about Howard Cosell. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more. But that definitely was the glamour sport in the Olympics. And then in track and field, it was, it, you would have the sprinters. The, they would get a lot of the headlines. But not so much the long-distance runners, especially, you know, the ladies wouldn't get as much coverage. And this era of the early 80s is kind of playing off a little bit of what you mentioned with Nadia Comaneci. So prior to Nadia Comaneci, I don't know that, you know, female athletes outside of Babe Diedrichsen got a whole lot of attention. Probably the most glamorous uh, female Olympic athlete would be the gold medal figure skating yeah oh yeah because there sure. was yeah dorothy Took hamill, hamill peggy, and peggy fleming. fleming yeah yeah so uh, but like you said you know the track and field that that was something that the united states was good at right so people were looking forward to it 
going in. And the one name that everybody knew going into the 84 Olympic Games was Carl Lewis. Mm-hmm. He was he was young in his early 20s at the time, and he was going to go for uh, four gold medals, which hadn't been done since Jesse Owens in the 36 games. And um, so he was the biggest name going in that I remember. Sure, because Carl Lewis had made the 1980 team as a 19-year-old. And he's 23 in in 1984, and he is in his prime. So he's he's about ready to start the run as the most dominant track and field athlete of his of, of his era. You know, and there's something to be said about the the having the title of the fastest human in the world. And you know, you see that uh, with uh, with boxing. There's still there are boxing champions at every weight level, but there's still something to be said about or you know whatever sport whether it's MMA there's something to be said about the heavyweight mm-hmm. champ right and that was a you know that held a lot of clout back in the day you go back to the movie Rocky when somebody was criticizing Apollo Creed and Rocky's like hey you know he's the champ <laughs> right yeah. would you ever do yeah you you, you, know, you can't take it away from the guy's the champ yeah and that was the you know as they called it the biggest title in the world so to be the fastest human alive, that that was the big that was the biggest deal, uh, probably at, at the time in the in the summer games going in with Carl Lewis, he was competing in the one hundred, the two hundred, the long jump. Those were his individual events, and then he was part of the relay, the four by one hundred. Which you know, while you talk about Carl, you know, being the fastest man in the world, he was his main sport was long jump. I mean that when he came out of high school and went to the University of Houston, he was recruited as a long jumper. And I, I saw an interview with his his coach who said, I told Carl, I don't care if you run because I just want you to long jump because that's that's my focus with you. You were brought here for that reason. If you want to run 100 meters, good for you. If you want to do relay, I don't care as long as you dedicate your time to the long jump. So let's step back in time here. So 1984, we got, we got Sean, we got myself, and... Those were two events that we, or those were events that you and I did compete in in junior high ourselves. You know, you ran, you ran in the relay team. Mm-hmm. I ran in the relay team. I competed in the long jump. So those, those were events that I actually were kind of drawn to because in my personal life, those were events that I competed in at that same time in middle school. Right. Right. So, you know, our, our blazing fast times that we would have. <laughs> by the way, though, my, my relay team did win the championship. So, you know. We had we had a baton that was engraved and stuck in the school uh, trophy case that that's probably been thrown away by now. All right. Well, along the way, uh, you know, you were able to learn about some other athletes that, uh, to me, really stood out. And I was particularly drawn to Edwin Moses, and I think ESPN did a really good job of sort of introducing, even though this is a guy who had a long and illustrious track career considered the greatest, you know, 400 meter hurdler of all time, but how many viewers or you know, the American average American Joe wouldn't know who Edwin Moses was unless he was brought out there and say, Hey, this, this guy's really good at what he does. And he was, it was so unique to watch Moses run because obviously when you're a world-class athlete, nothing you do is effortless yet he made it look so effortless. And I remember as kids, we had a conversation talking about Edwin Moses. 
And somehow the name Gary Maddox came into play. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was sitting here thinking the same thing. Because, and, and again, yeah. it's, we did not talk about yeah. this before. But Gary Maddox was a baseball player, played for the Phillies. He was a great defensive center fielder, but he made it look so easy out there. And just the way that Edwin Moses ran reminded me of watching Gary Maddox chase a fly ball down in the gap in left center field. Well, because, you know, two-thirds of the world is covered by water. The other third's covered by Gary Maddox. Gary Maddox, yes. And the thing that, the cool thing that we learned about Edwin Moses was because uh, when he was a college student, he had a background in engineering and physics, and he really studied. He was more of a student of his craft than just somebody that went out there and uh, you know, could run really fast. Sure. And the thing that stood out to me about Edwin Moses was that, and I, and I read back on it uh, recently, was that he had his stride down to such an exact science that he could count 13 strides mm-hmm. between hurdles. And he said, what well, that gives him an advantage is, yeah, the first half, the first 200 meters, it's kind of neck and neck, you know, he's even with everybody else. But as the race continues on, where he stays with his 13 strides, everybody else increases their strides and starts to fall behind. And it's more of a, it really is like a, like a physics look at a sport where you're, you're looking at it from a you know, statistical and analytical standpoint to wear down your opponent where he stays consistent, they get less consistent, and then he's able to pull away and win easily, which he always seemed to win by you know, a good 10, 15 yards, it seemed like every race. And it never seemed like he was putting out a full effort, which was always amazing. Like when he said that he looked effortless, he... He, he kind of looked like a professor. You know, he, he was, when he raced, uh, you know, go back and watch some videos of it. He's, you know, he's got a full beard and he's got a very pronounced receding hairline. So he, he looked even older than what he was. So in 1984, uh, I mean, he, he had won Olympic gold in 1976. So, you know, he, he'd already been, he'd been doing it for a while. And, you know, he, this was his last hurrah at, at, at running. And he definitely was an elder statesman out there. But it was, as you said, amazing that when he would run, even though he's, he doesn't look like he's straining, and, but he would just win easily. And it was, I, I don't ever remember seeing a close race. Yeah, and I don't know if, if you could ever find that a record like his could be broken at that particular event, but he had a 10-year winning streak from 1977 to 1987. He actually did end up competing in the Soul Games of 88, and won a bronze medal at in his thirties, which at the time was unheard of. Uh, you know, be able to compete at that level in that far into their careers. Because, mind you, in 1988, he had been running professionally or you know as a as a track star since the mid 70s. So it was you're talking almost 15 years of competing at the international level. So he won 122 straight races. I think that's one of the. To me, that's kind of the beauty of of the Olympic games back then is it would sort of introduce you to people that you didn't know about before. And yet you could, uh, gave you a, a good, strong rooting interest. Cause I remember when I, I was glued to the TV watching that, that gold medal, ma- uh, race for him going for the, uh, 400 meter hurdles. I remember being nervous yeah, just because he had that long streak going and you're, you were kind of uh, almost it, it, when he won, it wasn't necessarily that you were going crazy it's as much a sense of relief. It's like, oh, he did it because everybody expected him to do it. And when you're in that position, there's just so much pressure. And I really feel bad for somebody because 
like that that set the expectations so high where if you win, oh yeah, you're supposed to win. And if you lose, then it's a, it's a major letdown. So the fact that he went in as the faraway favorite and he still was able to come out on top and, and win, um, I mean, it just made it even more impressive with all the, the stress that he was under. One of the other one of the other events that kind of drew us in, and I think a lot of it had to do with the. I think ABC really deserves a lot of credit for their coverage of these Olympic games, because to us, or at least to myself, it was fun. It was fun to watch. I really, I really got into the announcers for their. I think they picked their announcers for their respective sports very well, mm-hmm. because uh, particularly. Uh, you know, watching men's gymnastics, I didn't know gymnastics from, from what, you know, I knew what gymnastics were, but I never sat and watched, but I watched gymnast men's gym, men's and women's gymnastics. Mm-hmm. I watched that every night it was on and you, you started to, to see some of the people, it, unfortunately for the men's gymnastics team, they won the gold, they won the overall gold medal. First time the U S team ever did that. It was Unfortunate that the that the uh, Soviet bloc countries weren't there. Who knows how they would have done had the Soviets been there or had the you know the the other um, you know countries that chose to boycott. It would have been nice to see how they would have compared or stacked up against against those countries that didn't show up. But uh, two two names that stood out to me were Bar Connor, who was basically the captain of the of the team, and. Uh, Somebody who ended up going on to somewhat of an infamous future was uh, Mitch Gaylord, who was uh, ended up be- trying to make a stint as an actor and came up with Gen X, one of Gen X uh, retro movies, uh, American Anthem. That right. is a horrible movie. <laughs> it, and the shame of it is, is I saw the movie, uh, not in the theater, I, I must say. The, the, the big takeaway for me from that movie was the soundtrack, the Take It Easy on Yourself. It was Andy Taylor yes. from Duran Duran with his one and only kind of solo hit. But, yes. you know, Mitch, Mitch Gaylord, as an actor, he was a fine gymnast. Well, there's also Mrs. Wayne Gretzky, Janet Jones, who yeah. was in that, in that movie as well. Um, so, but again, I was not necessarily somebody that was going to watch men's gymnastics, but credit credit abc and their coverage because it was fun to watch and and to watch the men accomplish something they hadn't done before was pretty impressive all right anybody that's been listening i'm sure we're talking about gymnastics like why are you talking about the men's gymnastics what's wrong with you don't you want to talk about mary lou retton well of course we're going to talk about mary lou retton mary lou retton was the sweetheart that came out of the olympic games that everybody talks about uh she was she ended up being the breakout star yeah carl lewis like we had just briefly talked about it before we, we started recording, but Carl Lewis was everybody. The focus on him was huge. Sure. Mary Lou Retton was the big surprise that came out of the Olympic games. And, and, and what a charming and great surprise it was. Mary Lou Retton was the biggest star of the 1984 Olympics more so than, uh, the great Michael Jordan, who's, who's on the basketball team, more so than Carl Lewis, Edwin Moses. Go down the list. And, and Mary Lou came away as the most recognizable face, name. There were very few Americans after the Olympics in 1984 who did not know the name Mary Lou. At the age of 16, only yeah. 16 years old, 
she found herself on the cover of a Wheaties box, which right. was a big deal. I believe the first female to ever yeah, she get was. on, a, on yep. a Wheaties box. Yeah, she was. So great. Just the thing I remember about Mary Lou Retton was when she was going for the gold medal in the all-round competition. Mm-hmm. So she her final event is the vault, where right. where she and I believe she needed a score of. Oh, it was probably about nine seven five or something like that to clinch the gold medal. Well, uh, what didn't she need a ten to clinch and like a nine seven to tie? It was it was a nine. I think it was like a nine seven five to win, and she, she had two vaults. She okay. always took the best of two. So she does the first one, gets a ten. She does the second one. She doesn't need to get a ten. Doesn't to need that. to do it. Does the second one and gets another ten. And that's to me. That was one of the quintessential memories of the Summer Olympic Games of 84. Well, and also with Mary Lou, uh, you know, one of the, she was identified as much with her, with her coach, Bella, you know, Be- Car- Bella Caroli, yeah. who had been Nadia Comaneci's coach in 1976. So, you know, Bella defects from Romania. He, he kind of discovered Mary Lou a few years before that, and he, Mary Lou says that he showed up at uh, in, at a competition and he said, you know, you know, Mary Lou, he goes, he goes, I want to train you. He goes, you know, you have what it takes. And Mary Lou said that, you know, she wasn't the typical gymnast. She was uh, and is four foot nine. Mm-hmm. And she's and she, as she said, she goes, I was powerhouse. You know, I was I was about strength. I, I wasn't the the pretty really, you know, uh, nimble gymnast, I, you know, I was somebody that could bounce and, and, and I had a lot of strength and that's why the, you know, the vault was, she was so good at it. I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because I think, you know, because they had the same coach, they were two very different gymnasts. Completely. Komenich was very artistic and she was known for her grace. Mm-hmm. And whereas Mary Lou Retton was, she was an athlete and she was strong and she could, when she would do her, uh, you know, her jumps and she just, she could get sky high. And uh, that was one thing that when she did that vault and how her elevation getting up into the air at, you know, like you said, four foot Mm -hmm. nine and how high up in the air she could get, she was strong. Yeah. And it was much different than when you say, okay, you know, same coach, two different gymnasts, but they were very different gymnasts. But we, uh, as, as Americans like that style, uh, you know, it's it's great to see grace out there. We like to see graceful performers. And maybe this is more of an East Coast thing, because I know with sports, uh, w- w- you know, we tend to be that way with, you know, whether it's baseball or football. We, we like the high effort people more so than the people that make it look too easy. Sometimes you, you wish they give more effort when they, they are giving effort. It just doesn't look that way. Well, Mary Lou just was somebody you could tell she was giving everything she had. And, you know, it, it and once again, where you talked about Sugar Ray Leonard earlier with the engaging personality, you know, there, there wasn't a camera that Mary Lou didn't like, that she didn't light up and seem, and seem genuine. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people, they like the camera and you can tell they're kind of fool themselves. You couldn't help but think that, you know, Mary Lou just seemed like such a nice person and did not seem to, she didn't, she didn't shy away from the spotlight. She didn't seek it out, but, but she wasn't afraid of it. And I just think that America totally embraced her uh, you know for you know what does that show when you don't even need to get a perfect score the second time and she's got this thing where the second time she's kind of smiling a little bit yeah. as she's like running down the you know and approaching uh you know the the vault and it's it's it, you know you kind of like that little bit of swagger and the fact that we played sports and even though at the time you know i'm 13 you're 16 mm-hmm. 
when you're when you're an athlete and you play on some high level teams, competitive teams. Everybody, I think everybody play no matter what sport it is. You get to that moment where you're, you're talking about pressure moment, a make or break moment. And I think when she was lining up that first vault, anybody that ever played a sport or competed in something knew that, that recognized that pressure moment right there. And not only to not only to nail, but to get a perfect score, it's it's almost like hitting you know a, a hole in one uh, in a in a sudden playoff in a golf tournament. It's it's a big deal to, 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 and like I said, any athlete can see that, recognize it and, and know its accomplishment as being huge. And there's a couple of different ways to approach that as a coach. When, when you're dealing with an athlete, you could go up and you can, you can say, you don't want to bring it to their attention. You don't want to put more pressure on them. You're like, just go out. Don't think about it. Just do your best. That's one approach. The other approach was what Bella Caroli did, where he walked up to Mary Lou and said, Mary Lou, you need a 10. And he is flat out. He's like, it's gotta be your, he goes, and he said, this is it. This has to be the best, the best vault of your life. This moment, the, the, she's only 16, mm-hmm. but this is it. This is, it all comes down to this. And some people shrink from the pressure and she did not. No. No, interesting story with, with Bella. He was not technically the coach right. of the team. Correct. So he was not supposed to be down there, but they managed to get him as, a job as an equipment representative. He was like the equipment manager. He's yeah. the guy that carried yeah, around right. the, the uh, you know, the, the the bags right so he could get on the floor and then they were worried that after uh, after mary lou gets the 10 that he was going crazy that he was going to come out and get penalized and that they were going to take it back so everybody was concerned with keeping bella bella off of the floor and but that definitely was a a scene or or uh, an image that was projected over and over and over again you know for for the next few months that you know the, the two of them yeah yeah, and it was it was a great moment for anybody that was into the Olympics and watching those Olympic games. Uh, you know, it's just it was a great it was a great moment for Olympic history. I think. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna split off here. I'm I'm gonna focus on what to me was my favorite sport of the '84 Olympic Games, and then Sean's gonna cover his favorite. So I'm gonna talk about the USA basketball team, and you know I talked about it as the original dream teamers. When I actually went back and looked at the entire roster, not exactly the '92 dream team, but pretty good, pretty, pretty solid when you look Everybody at it. Everybody played in the NBA. Pretty, pretty good when you look at it. So let me run down the list of those who were on the roster. Now, keep in mind that the head coach of the '84 Olympic team was Bobby Knight mm-hmm. from the uh, University of Indiana, or Indiana University. Sorry, and um, Bobby Knight had already won two national championships, would go on to win a third national championship in 1987 with the Hoosiers. So in 1984, he was arguably considered at or at the top of the college coaching profession. So uh, again, as Sean had stated before, these Olympic Games, up to this point, the basketball players were amateurs. So they were college students. We're not talking about professionals. 92 was the year first year for professional basketball players. So these guys were still amateurs, but you'll still recognize a lot of names here. So I'll go down the list. Uh, from Indiana, Steve Alford. Uh, Patrick Ewing from the University of Georgetown. Vern Fleming from Georgia. Some guy named Jordan, Michael Jordan from North Carolina. Joe Klein from Arkansas. John Konkak from SMU. Chris Mullen from St. John's. Sam Perkins from North Carolina. Alvin Robertson from Arkansas. 
Wayman Tisdale from Oklahoma, Jeff Turner from Vanderbilt, and Leon Wood God, from Leon Cal Wood. State Fullerton. Oh, that just burns me up. <laughs> why don't you tell everybody why that burns us? Why that burns you and I up? All right. So you know, right, right after the Olympics, you know, we we're going to have the NBA draft coming up, and. Um, uh, Sixers have a couple of first picks, and you know they they make a fabulous pick. Uh, what was it number four, number five overall? They or, or six, whatever it was. Whenever they got Charles Barkley, a couple picks later they have another first rounder, and there's this this point guard there. They take Leon Wood because you know he's the Olympic point guard, and who do they pass on? But the Hall of Famer John Stockton, <laughs> always. And Leon Wood, I don't even know if he. I mean, I don't know if he, he was on the Sixers for more than like two years right. after that, and he just bounced around. And, and you know, he had he had this incredible pedigree, and everyone was excited when the pick was made. And and then Stockton went on to become a member of the Dream Team. Yes, and um, Leon Wood ended up more notably in sports as an NBA referee, yeah, as opposed yeah. to a player. So Leon Wood, I believe he's still in the league as as a as an official, but. Not to the benefit of the 76ers. No. So, all right. So there's there's your roster. As Sean said, all of these guys did end up playing in the NBA. So you're talking about this is this team was expected to win and win in a big way, and they performed. They did. This was an extremely uh, you know successful run for the USA basketball team. But it's also important to note some of the players that didn't get picked by Bobby Knight to make the team. You mentioned Charles Barkley. Mm -hmm. Great career coming out of Auburn. And by anybody that was following those those tryouts, they said next to Michael Jordan, Barkley was the second best player in the tryouts. Yet Bobby Knight chose to forego uh, Barkley for this Olympic team. Much to, and he did get criticized for it afterwards because Barkley ended up having a, a pretty spectacular NBA career. But at that time, Charles was the round mount of rebound. So I, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly why why Bobby and I didn't put him on the team. I mean, maybe you heard some things, but you know, Charles was a little, you know, his the weight was fluctuating, and you know, Bobby Knight, you know, he would he would have his ideas about how he wanted a team to be, and you know, sometimes you try to put an all star team together that doesn't always work. I think Bobby Knight was trying to put some pieces together. You know, I I, I heard uh, an old interview, uh, well, it was an old clip of Bobby Knight giving a lecture. And he talked about the 84 team and, and how great Michael Jordan was. And he said, Michael Jordan, he is the best athlete by far that he's ever seen. Not just basketball, but in any sport. He said, he goes, they, they were playing a game and he goes, they, they were up by an incredible uh, score, like 30 points at halftime. Jordan had had 19 points, uh, you know, 11 rebounds at the half. And he goes, he did all this in 12 minutes. And he said, he goes, I got to find something to fire this team up. He goes, so I guess I better jump on Jordan. And he walks in and he says, you know, Michael, he goes, you do all this, he goes, but everyone else on this team is out there setting screens. He goes, you don't set a screen. He goes, I got, I got four guys out there setting screens, but you. And he goes, and Michael just kind of like, he's, he goes, he's, he starts like almost laughing. And he, he said, didn't you just say in an interview that the other day that I'm the fastest player, quickest player you've ever seen? He goes, yeah. He goes, he goes, well, I'm just setting the screen so fast and quick you didn't see him happening. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, yeah. So, you know, who, who knows why, you know, Bobby Knight left the great Charles Barkley off the team, but he did. Well, not only did he leave off Barkley, but he passed over John Stockton. He passed over Terry Porter, who ended up having a, a big, long career with the T Portland Trailblazers. Johnny Dawkins, uh, you know, for Sixers fans, ended up playing for the Sixers, but he was with Duke University at the time. Uh, he had a long NBA career. Chuck Person was uh, Barkley's teammate in Auburn. 
he got passed over. So like, like you said, you know, Knight was looking for some type of a formula. And even though these guys ended up having huge NBA careers, you're talking about some Hall of Famers there that didn't get picked for this team. Whereas you had the Joe Kleins and John Concacks of the world, but those guys, like you said, were there for a reason. Mm -hmm. And this team, it was the Michael Jordan showcase. This is where the where the international world really got to see Jordan. Uh, North Carolina played lots of national games, but those were college basketball fans. Now you're talking about world viewership of people seeing arguably the greatest basketball player of all time take the floor. And it was his showcase. And not only that, you also had Patrick Ewing. Mm -hmm. You had, at the time, Sam Perkins and Chris Mullen. Talking about this was this was a great team. They had a great run. Their closest game was 11 points. Everything else was usually 20 or 30 points, if not more. And they dominated their way through it. it what ended up being kind of, I wouldn't say an effortless run through the, through the Olympics, but they certainly paid off and, and hit every expectation. This is the last great all-amateur uh, basketball team in USA history because in 1988, they do not win the gold. And then in 1992, then we have the Dream Team and we have all the professionals. Interestingly, with the Dream Team, there's quite a few guys that were on both teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, It's and, and Michael Jordan ended up being one of those rare athletes to win not only a college national championship and an Olympic gold medal and an NBA championship. Uh, that's rarefied air for... Um, you know, for MJ. So, but in addition to Michael, you know, Patrick Ewing was on both teams, and Chris Mullen was on both teams. Correct. Yes, but neither won an NBA title. So that's true. That's true. <laughs> so that was that was my big love at the time was was the USA basketball team. But along with Sean, the two of us sat and watched a lot of boxing. And you were talking about it before with uh, with the coverage of boxing but you know go ahead and share your thoughts on on the boxing team. all right so this is this is a case of uh you know two brothers knowing each other quite well because we do not talk before we we come into this so uh scott came in before we recorded this and he said so uh i'm going to talk basketball you're going to talk boxing well guess what was the only sport i walked in with notes on <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was boxing so that was definitely the the sport that i was into the most in 1984 Kind of set the, the scene a little bit because, you know, I'd said that coming out of the 70s, boxing was big. At this time, you saw a lot of boxing on television. It, it You saw you saw um, championship fights on television. Yes, you did. A, a ABC in particular, Howard Cosell was the voice of boxing. We were brought up where Howard Cosell would hype everyone in Muhammad Ali's fights. And they might not show the fights on television. You'd see them later. You after they may have aired on like a pay-per-view but leading up to the fight Howard would sit down and interview whether it was Ali it could have been um, uh, you know when it was with Leon Spinks or it, it could have been uh, you know Smoking Joe Frazier and then they talked to them afterwards so we knew all about Howard and Howard for those of you who don't remember was just the showman of showmen and he was somebody that would do a lot of sports you know he'd do baseball I, I didn't care for him as a baseball announcer mm -hmm. he would do Monday night football yes he was okay he, he halftime at halftime I didn't care I didn't think he added a lot during the game but he was good when he would do the sports and, and you know and kind of do the highlights but where he was phenomenal was as a as a boxing announcer because 
he had this this way of speaking, and I know, Scott, you can you do the voice better than what what, what <laughs> I what I do. I'm I'm not great at my Howard Cosell impersonation. The, uh, the thing about Cosell was he could go from zero to a hundred. Intentionally. Better, better than anybody. Intentionally. As an announcer. He would draw you in. You know, it would be, oh, right. And then they're, you know, they're landing on the right hook and the left hook. And then there is. Yeah. Down goes Frazier. You know, he, he had just, he you could jump. get so excited. And your eyes may have diverted away from the TV at one point when you're watching Larry Holmes fight Randall Tex Cobb for whatever. But mm-hmm. it was a heavyweight championship fight. And I think the authenticity for Cosell was. It could have been a preliminary boxing match in these Olympics, or it could have been a gold medal match in these Olympics. But the way that he presented the the you know the boxing match itself, it was it almost felt like it you had to like you had to pay attention to he it hyped because, it because he would he could he could draw you like you said he could draw you into to these fights right and and Olympic boxing is different than professional boxing that you know kind of what what they're looking for it, it's. It, you know, the way that the points are scored, it's, you know, there's not nearly the, the, the knockouts because the fights only go three rounds where, you know, when you would get, especially in the 70s and 80s, you get these 14 round fights and, you know, or you watch the movies, the, the Rocky movies, it's, it always came down to the final round and, and guys are worn out. We're here, you got to, you got to kind of score points. So the 1976 boxing team, which we talked about with Sugar Ray, was, you know, regarded by many people as arguably the the greatest men's boxing team ever then they came back you know they missed 1980 but the 1984 there there are most people that that follow boxing will say that this is the best team ever put together it they out of the the 12 weight classes the usa came over with 11 medals only one boxer did not medal and you know they there there's some big names that came out of it not only did you we have people that were Good amateurs, because there's there's that you know there's plenty of that. Most of the guys were good, but you never really heard from them mm-hmm. again. But we came out of this with some big champions, big name champions, um, that that came. So just kind of run some of them down, and it's it's kind of interesting that um, a couple of the fighters that Scott and I were really into at the time, uh, probably the the biggest name that that you and I were drawn to was Meldrick Taylor. Yes, and and he, he was a 17 year old out of Philadelphia, yes. you know, close to where we're at. So we kind of knew the Meldrick Taylor hype coming in, and then he ended up, after winning gold, to going on being being a really successful champion. A lot of world champions came out of the out of this U.S. boxing team. And I'm sorry, continue. No, so the the biggest name coming in to the Olympics from boxing, the name that if you go back and watch the the, the boxer that that Howard Cosell sits down in interviews was Mark Braylon. Mark Brillen was the five-time Golden Glove champion. He was this this long, lean uh, athlete that could just jab, jab, jab with his with his long arms, keep guys away from him, and then he could land a knockout punch, which for an amateur was not common because Correct. a lot of these guys were were point scorers. Yes, and and Braylon was somebody that you know that I remember about Cosell and as us watching as kids. The thing I remember about them talking about Braylon was this guy's going to be the next great pro, right? Because they they were already looking beyond the Olympic Games. Like this guy's got something special. He 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 can lay people out. He could, and 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 you know, but right before the Olympics, he ended up having some surgery on his hands. So it it was, you know, how was he going to perform? Well, he came through, and, and Mark Braylon 
like he did as an amateur at every step dominated and he he came away with the gold went on to have a, a you know a successful career as as a boxer not quite the dominant boxer is some of the other ones, some of the, the bigger names. You know, today, interesting, you know, he is the, a trainer and he's, he's a very well-known tra- trainer. You know, he was a Deontay Wilder's trainer mm-hmm. up until, you know, recently. So it's, this is somebody that um, um, was without a doubt the biggest star of the team uh, and, you know, was successful. Kind of like we talked about Edwin Moses, who had a lot of pressure. Mark Braylon had a lot of pressure as well. Another big name um, that came out of this was Evander Holyfield. Evander Holyfield, most people re- will remember as you know his his uh, champion run that he had. You know he started out had this incredible career as a light heavyweight. He he was light heavyweight when he was on the Olympics. Mm-hmm. You know he was because as you mentioned, there's something special about the heavyweight class. You know that's where you're considered the best. Yeah, and and that's where the big money's made. Uh, already. Holyfield is still considered at or near the top of light heavyweight champions of all time. Sure. Uh, but yet, like you said, it wasn't it was one thing to be known as the light heavyweight champion. It's another thing to be heavyweight champion of the world, at least back in that time period. Right. So like you said, he, he made a very conscious and committed effort to raise his weight, fight at the heavyweight level, and it paid off. I mean, he's he's also considered not only – if not the best light heavyweight of all time, but he's also got to rank up there among some of the better heavyweight champions of all time as well. He he does. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people probably remember him for the incident he had with Mike Tyson, where Tyson bites a piece of his ear off during a match. And and people may forget what a great champion he was. So, you know, and, and by the way, you know, Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson did, did not make the Olympic team, as you know, and it was, he was, he was an, an up and comer, for sure, he ended up um, losing to Henry Tillman, and who Henry Tillman eventually goes on and wins gold. But in no way does Henry Tillman have the the career that Mike Tyson did. And keep in mind, at the time, Tillman was what three years older, I believe, than than Tyson, because Tyson was eighteen, and I believe Tillman was twenty one. And eighteen years old to twenty one years old, there's a lot of experience there. That uh, you know, as we said. Olympic boxing, amateur boxing is about scoring points. It's not right. necessarily about knocking people out, which is what Tyson went on later to do with a lot of different people and was quite successful at it. Uh, Tillman did not have the pro career, nor did I think people expected him to be the next great champion uh, at that time. And it's it's amazing to me that Tyson even advanced as far as he did in qualifying for the Olympics because from what I, you know, Customato, you know Tyson's trainer from back at that time, said you know this this was a young man that was was trained and and every step in their training was to become heavyweight champion of the world. It was not to become Olympic champion, and it's a di- different scoring system. And they also knew in what they had with Mike Tyson. This was, this was not someone built for long distance. This was somebody that wanted to get you in the ring and knock you out in 30 seconds and, and, and overtake you with power. Without, as you mentioned, that's not the Olympic game. So right. the fact that he was even remotely successful, and once again, this is the sort of thing that we were able to see now. We, we could see the, the, the trials, and we saw a young Mike Tyson that where years prior to that, you didn't know who they, who they were. So anyway, so... So Holyfield, what he's known for, and, and I can still remember it like it was yesterday, because 
he was just cruising in the Olympics, and he was so dominant. And you can even go back on YouTube, and you can hear Howard Cosell describe the way he's boxing, and that he always fights his fight, and he's such an intelligent boxer, and he dictates the pace, and everybody does what he wants to do. So he's dominant. He's, he's, he's there. He's fighting against uh, the New Zealander, Kevin Barry. And, oh, go ahead. You want to say he's, something? No, he's killing Barry. Killing Kevin Barry. Or Kevin Barry. And so... We, 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 we get to the point, and he he hits Barry, and then there's, we can't tell we're watching it on TV, right? So we can't hear what's going on. All of a sudden, he hits Barry. We see the referee separate Kevin Barry from Hollyfield, and the referee stands there, and he counts Kevin Barry out. And then he walks over, and instead of raising Evander Hollyfield's hands, he disqualifies him. And then this controversy comes out where Evander Holyfield, they say, or the, the referee um, said that he, well, he told him to stop, and then he hit him after he told him to stop. And then that's why he disqualified, even though he was telling him to stop because he was going to count, count the other guy out. Right. The fact he threw one extra punch, he said, well, he's done, you know, it's Olympic boxing and you're disqualified. Now, as you were, we were talking about this earlier, we, you, you go back and you listen to it and you see the tape. It's not accurate. You know, Hollyfield, when he's told to stop, he stops. Mm -hmm. But what are you supposed to do as a boxer? You have to keep going until you're told not to stop. So as a result, Evander Hollyfield only gets the bronze medal. And uh, because Barry wasn't able to fight in the, in the gold medal, there's no gold medal fight. Right. Which was really kind of a major letdown. And, to the point where, uh, so it, it put a little bit of a damper on that particular weight class. And I think with all the, all the success that the U S boxers had, that was my biggest memory of boxing in the 84 Olympic games was that one moment when Holyfield gets, gets uh, disqualified. Yes, in, absolutely. In the semifinal. Yep. That, that was, if you had asked me what, you know, as far as boxing from 1984, what do I remember? That would have been number one on my list. Now, the last fighter I, I'm going to mention, and keep in mind, we, we had 11 medal winners. And some people might say, ah, you know, well, the Cubans weren't there. So, it, you know, it, it wouldn't have been as high. Eh, probably not. But this last boxer, uh, I think, would have won regardless. And that was Pernell uh, Sweepy Whitaker. And he went on to, uh, in many ways, I think he was the breakout star from the boxing team. Well, Mark Braylon came in as the name. Uh, uh, Pernell Whitaker went on to to be a, a massive champion, and he he won his gold medal so easily. It, you you go back yes. and you watch it on YouTube, and see the bounce that Pernell Whitaker had, and at his size, the amount of a power that he was thro uh, that he was throwing, it, it, it was incredible. And then he just continued as a pro. When when people talk about Floyd Mayweather. And how what made, has made him such a great boxer over time is the fact that you can't hit him. That was Whitaker. You yes. couldn't you couldn't lay a glove on. He was that fast. And of course, you and I think later in his pro career when he actually got to fought, fight for the for the title against Julio Cesar Chavez, mm -hmm. in what I consider to be one of the great crimes in boxing history, kind of turned us off. Oh yeah, to boxing all altogether because. In our eyes, he dominated that fight, and yet they called it a draw. Yeah. And uh, I think had he been able to win at that time, Chavez was undefeated. And Whitaker would have been the first time to ever, he would have been 
uh, Chavez's first loss ever. Would have been, I think it would have taken him to a whole, because remember Chavez at the time was considered pound for pound, the best fighter in the world. And Whitaker dominated that fight. He did. Could have been considered even greater than what uh, what he already was as a pro. But still, even with that, and, and I agree, that, that was a, a travesty what happened to him with that fight. But, you know, coming out of the Olympics, I, I think, you know, Evander Holyfield may have, have ended up with a bigger name just because he fought in some really big fights. Uh, but Pernell Whitaker, immediately afterwards, if, uh, if not Meldrick Taylor, I mean, those three were kind of the, the main breakout big names. None of them, I don't think, ever quite went to the level of Sugar Ray uh, because he, he definitely captivated America. But as a team, th- we've never matched the, the number of champions that, that we had in 1984. Yeah. Those are the two that we wanted to cover. I would be remiss if we didn't mention the USA swimming team again in uh, 1984. Uh, both the men and women won 21 out of 30 events for USA Gold. For me, my biggest takeaway from the 84 games is every time I watch swimming on TV now is the name Rowdy Gaines <laughs> because Rowdy Gaines yeah. had a breakout Olympic Games in 84 as a swimmer himself. Yeah. But to me, Rowdy is one of he's one of those guys that you, know, you talk about Cosell drawing you in with boxing. If it wasn't for Rowdy Gaines, I'd never watch swimming. I think he's a great, great announcer. And it turns out he was a pretty, he was a world class swimmer back back in his day. And a great story in 1984 because, like many athletes, Rowdy Gaines was in his prime in 1980. He he was he was the the odds on gold medal favorite going into the 80 games. He wasn't able to participate by 1984. He's you know kind of old for the sport, and he has this one moment in time which. This is part of the reason why I think we like sports is is you can just kind of if you can muster it up for that one moment and, and it lives forever and that's you know we talked about that with Mary Lou with with Bella Crowley said to her and that's what happened to Rowdy Gaines he he was not the favorite going into to his race and he ended up setting a, a world record mm-hmm. yeah one thing we want to talk about uh, with regards to the 1984 Olympic Games is the promotion that McDonald's. Uh, throughout there in 1984. If you're a Gen Xer, you remember this. McDonald's, Sean said it earlier, they actually had charts of people that were competing in certain events, and you knew which Americans were competing in specific events. And their advertising slogan was, when the U.S. wins, you win. Now, keep in mind that when McDonald's created this whole promotion, they were not expecting your major competition to be backing out. So this is with the estimates when, when the, uh, the United States was expected, anticipated or uh, projected to win roughly 93 medals total and about 40, 50 gold medals. And right? you're kind of, they were kind of basing it on a statistical formula from the seventies. Yes. Because as you had mentioned earlier, we didn't do nearly as well as as the Soviets at the 1976 Olympics. Correct. And the, and the United States only won about 40 gold medals in the 76 games. So, and, and about 90 medals overall. So that's what McDonald's went based on this campaign. So they had these little tickets that you could get and it would have the event and they would have the American participating in that event. If they won a gold medal, you got a free Big Mac. Mm-hmm. If you If they won a silver... It was the fries, fries and yeah. if it was a bronze, it was the soda. Yeah. You got the free drink. Right. 
All right, so McDonald's does this. The U.S. goes and wins 40%, 44% of all the gold medals in this, these Olympic Games. So they go from being projected to win about 40 to winning 83. Mm-hmm. And they go from uh, projecting 90 medals to winning 174. Needless to say, it cost McDonald's a pretty penny on, uh, on free items and, and free food to the point where in some McDonald's restaurants, they were running out of product for people that actually wanted to pay money for their uh, for their items, but they didn't have them because so many people were uh, bringing in these tickets for for the uh, for the for the free food. And to add insult to injury, what McDonald's did, they gave away these free tickets ahead of time. If you got a free ticket, so if you got a free Big Mac, you would then take it, redeem it, and get another ticket. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So each yeah. time you redeemed your free food, they would give you another ticket. So. You could say you say even if you didn't get the initial free ticket, if you if you literally bought one item, they gave you a ticket. You could then take that ticket, go up and get another order, get another ticket, and come back and come back and come back and come back. And so there were some people that didn't pay for food for a couple weeks. Yeah, and uh, there's a there's a great parody done by The Simpsons in their early run around season four. And uh, so they were spoofing the 1984 Olympics. And instead of it being McDonald's, it was Krusty Burger with Krusty the Clown. And so they did the whole promotion. And Krusty finds out he's going to lose $44 million based on this promotion because all the, uh, the, the communist bloc countries pulled out. So Krusty goes on TV and starts yelling at people saying, stop by, stop, stop it with the tickets. I'm going to spit in one out of every 50 Krusty Burgers. So you don't buy them anymore. And Homer goes, I like those odds. So that's a Simpsons. Well, Simpsons, we'll talk about that in another yeah. time. Yeah, because yeah, you know, we, we, when we get to the 90s, that we're, there'll be quite a few Simpson references. So that's our little trip down memory lane for the 1984 Summer Olympics. Sean, any final thoughts? Well, it, it was a great time. I mean, it really was. You know, it, it's not just for the country. You know, it was, I think it was a great time for you, you and me. At, you know, at that time, you're 13 years old. You're, you're now a teenager. I'm 16. It's, it's um, and we have this this whole great sense of uh, of, of you know, patriotism going on at the 84 Olympics. It was for the first time, the, the coverage was up to date. We got a lot of coverage. We weren't seeing as, you know, delayed events. We were seeing things in multiple outlets, whether it was the, you know, ABC, but also on ESPN as well. And the major publications, you know, I talked about Sports Illustrated covering this. It was something that was so much part of the pop culture. I, I, I don't, think that the Olympics will ever get back to that again. You know, there's been many people that have said that the 84 Olympics, the Summer Olympics under Peter Uroth is what ushered in the the current modern way of doing the Olympics. I mean, they, they say the modern Olympics started in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. But as far as the way the Olympics, what became of the Olympics, how it was packaged, that all changed after what was done at the Olympics in 1984, and it was it was definitely a, a cultural phenomenon in the United States. What I remember most about the 84 Olympics is for for an entire week, we were down in Ocean City, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and it was the first and only time that we spent a week down uh, vacationing with two other sets of our cousins, our aunts and uncles. We all stayed in the same house. 
And it was, um, you know, our Uncle Ray and Uncle Gene and our cousins, Jeff, Chris, and Bud, and um, Shelly, and Brad. And we, we all piled into this little house. But what, what I remember most about the 84 games is the fact that we all went to the beach during the day. But everybody, and I mean everybody in that household, we had to be back, showered, eating our food, so that when... I believe it was eight o'clock rolled around or seven thirty or whatever when they started the Olympic coverage on ABC. We were all watching mm-hmm. it. We crowded around a not so big television and we just watched it from beginning until end and we didn't miss a single and night. And cheered and you know what you know, hung on the edge of our seats uh, you know, as if we were there. You know, the previous, you know, last week's episode when we talked about 70s television and how people gathered around as families to watch certain shows, I think that was kind of the culmination of of our era when you're looking at something like the 84 games, when you're talking about family uh, television that everybody was into. You know, we touched on the, the patriotism. We touched on the success of the USA teams. It kind of all kind of ran together and kind of created this perfect storm for an event that, for us, specifically you and me, and hopefully for, for you as well, that really stands out to us as a very poignant moment in our in our youth. It does. It does. And I look back at it with a lot of fondness. I mean, hence why we're talking about it uh, in, in this episode. It's, it's something that uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have a lot of nostalgia for as well. And, and if you didn't think about it, hopefully it comes back to you and you're like, that's right. If nothing else, I remember McDonald's just giving food away well hopefully we gave may give you a little bit more education on the 1984 summer olympic games from los angeles and we really appreciate you tuning into this week's particular episode i believe next week the uh, responsibility goes to sean do you have anything picked out for next week i do i do you know we were going to hit on a lot uh, hit on some different topics so next week we're going to talk movies and specifically we're going to talk about the uh the the movie career of that Mr. Tom Hanks. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed this week. And again, 1984 Summer Olympic Games. We had a blast talking about it, and we thank you very much for listening. I'm Scott. And I'm Sean. We are the Brothers High, and this is Gen X Playback. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks. See ya.